Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Before we dive into the text, let's get a little bit of a running head start. As we've been looking at, as we've been discussing in great detail over the last few weeks, Jesus has been teaching the disciples some important lessons concerning the Word of God. Beginning with the parable of the sower, Jesus has driven home the crucial point that your quest for truth begins with your position concerning the author of truth. Now, that's not groundbreaking. If your heart is hardened towards Jesus, you will not be receptive to his word, and therefore the truth will be concealed. Last week, Mark continued this train of thought using the parable of the hidden lamp to illustrate that though a person can choose to reject Jesus and thus limit truth, one will not be able to claim ignorance concerning the light of his revelation. The logic here is simply brilliant. First, everyone will be forced to take a position concerning Jesus. No one can be ignorant. Secondly, your position concerning Jesus will determine your position concerning his word. And it'll be your position concerning his word which will ultimately determine the amount of truth you find yourself exposed to. When it's all said and done, the direction of your life, whether you live in the light of truth or you continue in the blind ignorance wrought by sin and rebellion, either way, the direction of your life really boils down to one key thing. And this is what Mark is getting at. There's one key thing that determines the direction of your life, and that is your position concerning Jesus. Now, since your position concerning Jesus means everything, Mark is going to continue to the narrative forward by providing three stories that should help shape your view concerning Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the first. Verse 35 of chapter 4, And on the same day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, speaking of the disciples, Let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took Jesus along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And we're told a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And Jesus said to the disciples, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of our series here, Actions Speak Louder, our travels to the Gospel of Mark, when we get to a story like this, we're going to begin by establishing the scene of activity before transitioning to addressing any relevant questions that might appear within the text, before laying out a few points of observation. So we begin the scene of activity. Mark is clear that the story begins when evening had come. This is the context. Jesus has spent a long day ministering to the multitude. 
sensing it was time to push into new areas, which was normal for Jesus. He tells the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. He's instructing the disciples to prepare a boat so they could travel across the Sea of Galilee during the evening, during the night. Now, the Sea of Galilee was only about seven miles wide and 14 miles long for a crew of experienced seamen, which, note, many of the disciples, being fishermen, were experienced seamen. This journey should have only taken a few hours under the right conditions. Mark tells us, when they had left the multitude, they loaded up, they set sail, but then Mark provides us a really odd detail. To me, it might be a detail you overlooked when we were just reading through the text. Mark says that they took him, speaking of Jesus, along in the boat. Now, I don't think Mark includes this detail to ensure we know the disciples didn't forget Jesus. Kind of like, hey, let us, let us go to the other side. And the disciples, in their haste, they hurry, they get everything prepared, they hop in the boat, they set sail, and there's Jesus on the shore. Like, come on, guys, really? I don't think Mark's giving us this detail to just let us know that they didn't forget Jesus. Instead, I think Mark includes this detail for a, a different reason, a reason that, as we'll see the story develop, is important. I think Mark is indicating to us the attitude of the disciples once they set sail. Let me explain what I mean. Though I might be taking a little liberty in how I read this story, I'll admit that, I personally think that Jesus boarded the boat with the intention of helping the process across the sea. He commanded the disciples, let us cross over. Notice it wasn't, yo guys, take me to the other side of the sea. It was, hey, let's let us travel across the sea. Now, because Jesus admittedly was a greenhorn, it's a term I've become familiar with if you watch The Deadliest Catch. Jesus is a greenhorn. Don't forget, he's a teacher. Before that, he was a carpenter. Jesus isn't exactly an experienced seaman. Instead of allowing Jesus to help by rowing or manning a sail, it seems that they told Jesus to sit back and to stay out of the way. Jesus, come on, man, you're a good teacher. Before that, you were you know, above average carpenter, but we're professional fishermen. This is what we do. This is what we're trained for. You just sit back, relax, but Jesus, stay out of the way. It's clear that Jesus didn't argue. We're told he took the opportunity instead for a little R&R. Mark tells us that Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. Now, the phrase a pillow should better be translated the pillow. It was a specific pillow. The idea is not that Jesus brought along like a little cushy pillow just in case he was able to take a nap. No, the idea of the pillow kind of is more in line with that of a captain's quarters. It was a place that was set aside for the purpose of catching a little nap. Jesus is asleep in the captain's quarters. So the scene is set. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are manning the ship. They're traveling across the Sea of Galilee when something interesting happens. Mark tells us that a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, presumably, with water. 
The Sea of Galilee was located about 600 feet below sea level. And it was surrounded by, by mountains, completely surrounded by mountains, the tallest of which was Mount Hermon. Because of the cold air that would descend off the mountains, mixing with the warm air coming off the water, violent and unpredictable storms were a frequent occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. Some say that it was a lake that behaved like a sea. These low-pressure zones caused by the wind have been known to even cause swells on the Sea of Galilee of up to six feet tall. Now, it's a safe bet to assume that experienced fishermen like Peter, James, and John would have, over the years, navigated their fair share of storms. This wasn't the first storm these guys had faced. But as the story unfolds, it's clear that this storm was not your average storm. Things had become so dire that the boat was filling with water and they were in danger of sinking. Matthew's account of this story indicated that the storm was produced more than simply by a great windstorm. Matthew tells us, and suddenly there was a great tempest. The word tempest in the Greek is the word seismos, from which we get the word seismic. The word itself, a tempest, denotes a violent shaking coming from below, coming from beneath. Understand every other place in the Bible that the word Matthew translate tempest, you'll find it translated instead as the word earthquake. Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 27, Matthew 28, Mark 13, Luke 21, Acts 16, etc. Everywhere you see the Greek word seismos, it's translated earthquake, but Matthew translates it tempest. The wind stirred from above, the sea. It was stirred from above, but it was also stirred from a rattling, a quake coming from beneath. Either way, the one thing you can gather is this was indeed a great storm. Now, while all this is happening, Mark tells us, and he's clear, Jesus is sound asleep. But it's my opinion, my opinion, that the disciples think Jesus is faking it with the intention of teaching them some greater lesson. Note their exchange with Jesus. Mark tells us they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, if the disciples really believed Jesus was sleeping, their reaction would have been a little different. It would have been more like, Jesus, dude, wake up. We're sinking. We need your help. Logically, Jesus wouldn't have helped or wouldn't have been helping if he didn't know what was happening. Jesus is sleeping. You see, their question seems to indicate that the disciples believed or the disciples perceived or the disciples concluded that Jesus knew what was happening and still was making a choice to do nothing about it. Their accusation questioned why Jesus was still sleeping, why he wasn't helping out when he knew the situation had become desperate. 
from my perspective, their accusation only makes sense if they thought Jesus was intentionally sitting on the sidelines, even though they were sinking, just to prove a point. I kind of read this passage as teacher. Isn't that an interesting word? Teacher. Teacher means one who communicates a lesson. Jesus, teacher, lesson giver. Why do you still insist on making your point here, even when we're perishing? Okay, okay, okay. You got on the boat. You wanted to help. We got that. If you wanted to help so bad, how about like jumping into the fray now? This would be as good a time as any. Now, what happens next is awesome. Jesus jumps off the sideline. He gets into the fray. He arose. He rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace be still, or literally, be muzzled and stay muzzled. And what happened? The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now, let me try to help you unpack what's happening. Because I think we overlook an important detail. It's, it's almost as though we see this scene unfolding in slow-mo, and as a result of that, we kind of lose sight what's really happening, the nuances of the situation. Does Jesus care about the storm? No. He's sleeping. Does Jesus feel threatened by the storm? Nope. Is Jesus fearful they're actually going to sink? No, he's sleeping. He doesn't care. Is anything in our story happening out of Jesus's control? No. You see, please understand the storm is entirely an afterthought to Jesus. With this in mind, consider how the scene unfolds. The disciples they're freaking out. They're frantic. They rush in. They wake Jesus. They say to Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I believe Jesus is getting up. And as he's getting up, for the first time, he sees that there's this great storm. He doesn't care about the storm. They wake him up. He's a little groggy. He pops up. And as he goes to address this group of frightened disciples who are freaking out, he's kind of like, there's this storm happening outside that's going to make communicating with the disciples difficult. And so almost without thinking, he just kind of turns and he's like, shut up, storm. Pfft, zip it. The storm stops and he turns his attention to the disciples. Okay, guys, why are you so fearful? Like, I don't think like in the scene, that Jesus is computing their fear with the storm. Now they're afraid because of the storm. Jesus gets up and he's like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Like the screaming wind, shut up. Now what's going on? Now think of the irony. Think of the, the funny aspects of the story. Jesus asked, why are you fearful? And it's funny to me because what do you say in that moment if you're the disciples? Right, I mean, what has happened before Jesus even talks to you. He's already dealt with the storm. The very thing these guys were afraid might sink them no longer existed. I can see Jesus getting up, rebuking the wind and the waves, now turning his attention to the disciples like, okay, what's going on, guys? You're freaked out. I see that. What's happening? What's up? And they're like, 
Um, well, there was this, this storm, like, out there. Jesus is like, I don't know what's going on. Like, why are you so fearful? You see, in the moment, their fear of a storm, it seemed ridiculous, didn't it? Now, understand, the storm was never the issue. And that's our premise here. The storm was never an issue to Jesus. The issue wasn't even the disciples' fear of the storm. Please note that. I think that's important. Do you realize that being afraid of life-threatening situations is a natural human reaction that keeps us alive? Like if you are in a life-threatening situation, you are going to become afraid and then act based upon that fear for self-preservation. And like, that's a natural biological reaction because God gave it to you. If you're in a situation that becomes life-threatening and you're afraid, that's okay. People sometimes read this story and they're like, you see, we should never be afraid. No, like if I'm about to die in a life-threatening altercation, I'm going to be afraid and allow that fear to cause me to act appropriately. See, the issue here, the issue was that their fear in the storm revealed something deeper and actually something more problematic. Their fear in the storm revealed their lack of faith in Jesus. He said to them, how is it that you have no faith? The issue was never the storm. The issue was their lack of faith. Now we're told in response to Jesus and his actions on the boat that day, <laughs> they were afraid of the storm. But after Jesus spoke to the storm and it shut up and got calm, we're told that they were exceedingly afraid of what they had just seen with Jesus. They were afraid of the storm. Jesus speaks, and then they're really freaked out. They're exceedingly afraid. And they're finally forced to ask the most appropriate question they could have asked in such a situation. Who in the world is this guy? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, my first observation this morning, there's really not any relevant questions that come to the forefront so we're going to skip that and just go to some observations. The first observation, very simple. Storms happen. Storms happen. Now, before we unpack this, let me explain that within Scripture, as within other forms of literature, we find an interesting correlation between the natural world and the spiritual world. There are situations where natural occurrences present in Scripture a typological picture of a spiritual occurrence. Like, that happens in literature, it happens in the Bible. Three easy examples, and it's not limited to just these examples, is that in Scripture, a harvest, when the Bible talks about a harvest, yes, that's a literal season where you go out and you harvest your crop. But in Scripture, a harvest can also represent the reaping of spiritual blessings, a spiritual harvest. A famine can represent the withholding of spiritual blessing even can mean judgment in Scripture. A storm can represent, when we see them in Scripture, a difficult time or a stretching set of circumstances. Now, storms are interesting 
because Scripture seems to indicate that not all storms arise for the same reasons or with the same purposes. Scripture seems to indicate that there are two types of storms that can occur in our lives. First, there are what we'll call storms of obedience, of storms of disobedience and the storms of obedience. Storms of disobedience are storms of our own making that God allows into our lives with the express purpose of correction. Storms of disobedience, God allows to correct us. They are self-made storms that are caused by sin, that are stirred up by rebellion, sometimes even just simple poor choices. And God uses these storms to correct us and to set us back on the correct course. These storms are the natural manifestations of our decisions. But you should understand that these storms are avoidable. These storms God allows as a secondary. God wants to rebuke us, bring us to repentance through his word, but if we're not repenting, God will allow the natural manifestations of our poor decisions. He will allow a storm into our life by our own making with the purpose of bringing us to repentance so that God can set us back on the right course. A great example of one of these types of storms would be Jonah. Jonah hears from God, and what does he do? He rejects God's word, and he runs as far as he can possibly run from the word of God. He boards a boat, sails the opposite direction. What happens? A storm. God allows a storm. And what's the purpose? Not to destroy Jonah, but to bring him back to the desired course. They throw him overboard, he's swallowed by a fish, and what happens? It's a submarine right back to where he's supposed to be, a storm of disobedience. There are storms of obedience in contrast. These are storms not of our own making that God allows into our lives with the express purpose of perfection. Storms of disobedience for correction, storms of obedience for perfection. These storms do not originate as a consequence or a byproduct of anything that we've done or haven't done. They are completely out of our control and often arise suddenly and can stir up without warning. These storms are natural. Sometimes these storms are nothing more than just the result of living life and a really fallen world. There are occasions that storms of obedience can be of demonic origin. A great example of this would be the storm that Job faced, a storm of obedience. Either way, it's undeniable that God allows these storms into our lives. Why? In order to test us and stretch us and grow our faith in him as well as our dependence upon him. The Bible often refers to these types of storms as times of trial. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trial. Knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now with all this in mind, we can reason that the storm the disciples faced this night was a storm of obedience not a storm of disobedience. They were not in the storm because they had done anything wrong. Jesus had commanded that they enter a boat, set sail to the other side. They obeyed Jesus. 
And it was in the midst of their obedience that they found themselves in the middle of this storm. They didn't do anything wrong. They had been completely obedient to the commands of Jesus. And here's the lesson from our first observation. As we see illustrated in this story, storms of life don't always occur because you did something wrong. Sometimes they do, storms of disobedience. Sometimes God allows them to correct you, but not all storms serve that same function. Not all storms indicate that you did something to deserve it. Just because you find yourself in a storm doesn't automatically mean that God is punishing you or that you're receiving some judgment bestowed by God. Sometimes, when it's all said and done, storms just happen. You know, I think it's easier when we face storms of disobedience. I, I don't know if you can sympathize with this. Storms of disobedience, I get. And I don't often have a big problem with it. You know, because it's a storm of my own making, like, I can see it coming. Like, anyone that's been doing something wrong has been experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God has been saying, if you continue this path, it's going to get bad. I'm going to a storm is coming. And we still continue on that track. But we know, because we're in rebellion, that what's coming? A storm. And in some ways, because we know that, we can kind of prepare. It doesn't happen suddenly. But you know what else makes storms of disobedience almost easier to, to, to understand, to, to wrap your brain around? Not only can you see them coming, but also... Because it's a storm of your own making, it's kind of easy to know why it's happening. Like you're in a storm and you're like, this is what I deserved. Like I really can't blame anyone about the storm. This is the natural manifestation of my decisions. These are the inevitable consequences. It's tough, it's difficult, but I can wrap my brain around it. And in contrast, this is what makes storms of obedience so tough. So tough. Because of the sudden nature of these storms, they are often on top of me before I have a chance to prepare, before I have a chance to get my bearing. I went to the doctor's office not knowing what was about to happen, and boom, a storm. I got a bad report. I didn't do anything to deserve it or to cause it. It just happened. Progress reports come home, and your kid has been a moron. You might have known that was coming, but you might not have. Sometimes it's a storm that you can't prepare for. You've been faithful with your finances. You've been giving to the church. You've been prudent and wise. But the economy turns unexpectedly. And you see your house, its value, your main investment disappear. Didn't see it coming. As a matter of fact, no one really saw that one coming. But it's a storm. Not of disobedience, but rather of obedience. But you know, these storms, because I don't do something to cause them, they just happen, it's often difficult to know why they're happening. A storm of disobedience, I know why. I was an idiot. This happened. But if I'm not being an idiot and something bad still happens, I'm left with the, the intellectual problem of wrapping my brain around the why question. Why, God, are you allowing this? Now, though it's a difficult pill to swallow, the why answer 
though complex in its specifics, is rather simple in its generals. Though difficult, though painful, though I'm not minimizing any of those things, storms of obedience, we do know something about them. They are allowed by God because they serve an important function in the life of the believer that nothing else can serve. Now, this leads us to our second observation. Storms happen. Storms of obedience have a purpose. But what's the purpose? Storms deepen my faith. That's why God allows them. Now, the process by which this happened, there's a few stages. We're going to go through them systematically. The first stage is that storms of obedience, they begin by evaluating my faith. That's the first step here. We see this in our passage. There's a detail we overlook when it comes to our story. Everything began when evening come. What, how did the whole narrative start? It began with a command of Jesus that included a promise from Jesus. The story opens with Jesus saying to the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Jesus commanded them to board a boat, set sail, and cross the Sea of Galilee with one purpose. What was it? To make it to the other side. Now, this is important. It's important because this group of men, they had witnessed the miraculous power of Jesus' word. But they had witnessed this in the lives of others. The disciples had not yet experienced the power of Jesus' word practically for themselves. Intellectually, they knew that when Jesus gave a command, the command itself carried with it the power for obedience. In Mark chapter 2, they had witnessed Jesus give a paralytic man an impossible command, arise, take up your bed, and go home. And as the man was moved in faith to obey, the strength to obey was imparted to him. Mark tells us that immediately he rose. This was impossible under his own strength, under his own resolve. But understand, we aren't given any indication that the disciples had experienced the power of Jesus' word for themselves. They had seen it in others, but not yet for themselves. And in our story, this was all about to change. Jesus gave a command, cross the sea. You would have thought with all of their intellectual understanding of all the things that they had seen, no matter what arose on their journey of obedience, they would have trusted that Jesus would not fail to see them through to the other side. You would have think that they would have rested in this. But they lost sight of it. The disciples' lapse of faith began with a lack of faith concerning God's word and mainly God's promises. It's clear from their reaction that in the midst of their storm, their faith in Jesus their faith in his word, their faith in his promises ended up being pretty shallow, wasn't it? You see, the storm evaluated their faith, not just for Jesus' sake, but whose sake? For the disciples' sake. They saw in the storm that, wow, we have a long way to go. Now, the second stage to this, how storms deepen my faith, they begin by evaluating my faith, but then they continue to the second stage, the storms of obedience strip away my self-reliance. Now, this is where everything kind of comes full circle for us. 
Jesus had given a command, let us cross over to the other side. It's my belief that Jesus was asleep, not because he wasn't willing to help. Understand that. He wasn't asleep because he wasn't willing to chip in. He wasn't asleep because he was a prima donna. I think Jesus was willing to jump into the mix. The only reason Jesus is asleep is because they wouldn't have allowed him to help. They had it. Though Jesus had given a command, the men in that boat didn't want his help. They wanted to obey his command with their own strength. They were prideful. They wanted to engage the journey and reach the destination without Jesus' help or his involvement. And why was this? I believe they think they honestly didn't need it. I mean, they were professional fishermen. They thought they were capable of doing this, accomplishing this task without him. Most of the men that day, they had grown up on that sea. They were experienced, trained fishermen. I don't think that they didn't want Jesus' help, that, that telling Jesus to go get a little R&R &R was out of a malicious heart or for malicious reasons. I think they simply really believed that they could accomplish the task without Jesus' involvement. Jesus, you asked us to do something, we got it. You just sit back, you relax. Take a breather. Now, I find further proof in this theory with this simple detail. Think about it. At what point in the storm do the disciples finally break down and ask Jesus for help? You know how it is, right? If you set out to do something on your own, and let's say your dad's like, hey, I'll help with that. And you're like, no, dad, I'll do it on my own. And dad's like, okay. At what point in the project do you finally break down and pick up the phone and call dear old dad and say, dad, I have made a mess of this and I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you help me? Trust me, it's not at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> like there's a big process that goes forward for you to reach that point. Was it the early signs that a storm was brewing that the disciples thought to themselves, maybe we ought to get Jesus involved? No. Was it at the point that they realized that this storm was maybe unlike any other storm that they had ever encountered? No. Was it even at the point that they were beginning to take on water that they thought maybe we should ask Jesus for some help? No. These prideful men didn't cry out for help until they had reached the absolute breaking point. Matthew's account of the story tells us that they were covered with the waves. Mark says that the waves were pounding not on the sides of the ship, but inside of it. Luke's account of the story is even a little more blunt. He tells us that they were just in jeopardy. Jesus allowed this storm to evaluate their faith, but I am convinced he allowed this storm to strip these men of their pride and their self-reliance, their thought that they could do it on their own. And you know what? He does the same thing with us. As with us, Jesus will often allow storms to break our self-confidence. He'll allow storms to push us to the brink of what we think we can handle on and under our own strength. And why does he do this? Please understand, Jesus allows storms of obedience to push us 
to break us of self-reliance, not for our detriment, but for our betterment. And how is this? Well, it leads us to our third stage. Storms of obedience renew my dependence on Jesus. Now let's consider what manner these disciples approach Jesus. Don't forget, these men are in a storm of obedience that has revealed their lack of faith. It's already stripped them away of their self-reliance. They are at a point of desperation. They are at a point of total despair when they cry out, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, some might say that their protest began when they concluded Jesus' inaction revealed his indifference. And though there might be some validity there, I think the issue, their protest, goes much deeper than that. I believe the disciples were upset because as they tried to weather the storm, they saw Jesus intentionally sitting on the sidelines and they interpreted his reaction, his inaction, Not just as indifference, but as Jesus trying to teach them a point, communicate a lesson. Now, there are two interesting ironies that emerge when you consider the story this way. First, why was Jesus on the sidelines at all? In our story, Jesus was inactive for one reason and one reason alone. He was inactive because the disciples had put him there and failed to call him into the action. They wanted to do it themselves. That's the only reason Jesus was on the sideline. But the second irony here is that Jesus was using the storm to teach them a lesson. He was. Storms, they reveal our faith. They strip away self-reliance. They renew my dependency on Jesus Jesus is always waiting, though, to be called into the action, to be called into the fray. Think about this. I find great encouragement here. Jesus hadn't been stirred by the howling of the wind. He slept. He rested. He hadn't been woken by the rocking of the waves. He slept. He rested. The deafening crash of the thunder or the brilliant flash of lightning had no effect on Jesus He slept. He rested. What woke Jesus? One thing. It was the cry of his disciples for help. And what happens? What do we see? Jesus responded. If you write anything down this morning, please write this down. Jesus always responds to the cries of his disciples for help. That he'll never leave you to face these storms alone. Which leads us to our fourth stage. Storms of obedience. What do they do? They they, they reveal faith. They strip away self-reliance. Right? What do they do? They bring us back to Jesus, but they ultimately move Jesus to action. Mark spent the last chapter discussing our heart towards Jesus and our heart towards his word. That's the context. And with this story, Mark is illustrating the process by which our faith in God's word roots itself deep, grows strong through storms. But Mark communicates a story that practically demonstrated for us the power of Jesus' word. 
Jesus sowed the word. Where? He sowed the word into the storm. He sowed the word into the wind and into the sea. Peace be still. And it's clear that the word, the seed, had tremendous power, doesn't it? The wind immediately ceased, and there was a great calm. But you should understand this. When you witness the same word Jesus sows into your heart, being used to bring calm in the midst of your storm, what should happen? What should the results be? It should be a deepening of my faith in Jesus and his word. Storms of obedience. They evaluate my faith. They strip away my self-reliance. They renew my dependency on Jesus. And when I see Jesus move to action in my storm and I witness the power of his word in my time of need, what happens? The seed of faith sinks its roots deep and it begins to grow in a healthy way, a strong way. Truthfully, it's the only way Let me exhort you not to misappropriate a lesson from our story. And this happens, I think, sadly. Jesus, just because he spoke and this storm and this story ceased, doesn't mean that Jesus intends to work the same way when it comes to your storm. He might, but he might not. You see, the appropriate lesson that you can take from this story is this, that storms of obedience, in storms of obedience, Jesus has a purpose in allowing them. His purpose is to grow my faith. Secondly, Jesus doesn't leave you to face the storms alone. He's always with you. Thirdly, Jesus has the power over the storms you face. Jesus wasn't powerless over the storm, so we should rely on him to endure. But fourth, Jesus' word is always able. It can cause the storm to cease, but it's always able to produce peace. That we should rest with Jesus. Jesus never promises that he'll cause the storm of obedience to subside. But he will always promise to provide you peace so that you can endure, so that you can persevere, so that you can grow. Often our prayers are, Lord, get me out of this, when they should be, Lord, give me the strength to get through it and help me see what you're trying to teach me. The third and final observation as we wrap things up this morning is that the storm forced these disciples to ask a relevant question. We're told following the events of that day, they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, the interesting thing about storms, storms, whether they're of disobedience or of obedience, either way, it's just storms of life, the, the irony of them is that they happen to everyone. Like, they don't just happen to Christians. They don't just happen to theists. Storms, the crap of life, guess what? 
They happen to everyone, regardless of religious persuasion. Even the atheist that doesn't believe a God even exists still faces storms. The question, since storms are on the horizon, since you might be in the storm, do you want to face them alone? They happen. You can't exclude them. You can't rationalize them away. But the question you have to ask is, do I want to face this on my own? On my own strength? On my own ability? With my own resolve? Or am I willing to trust Jesus? But also realize, and this is important, there is no bigger testimony to the power of God and His Word than a believer at peace in the midst of a storm. Do you realize that the world cares and watches more how you handle yourself when life is falling apart than when life is great? When they say, see you with joy and peace, but everything's grand and glorious? Eh. But when they see you with joy and peace, when there's no rational, logical way those things should exist in your situation, what do they have to conclude? Either you're nuts or that Jesus is real because your peace is a peace that passes understanding and your joy is produced not from yourself but is the fruit produced from the Holy Spirit. People watch how you handle storms of obedience. And often their conclusions communicate a truth that's more powerful than anything else you might be able to communicate with your words. The King James Version. I like how it states what these men said to one another. The King James Version reads, What manner of man is this? Who is this? In the next story, they're about to find out. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.